Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global, The Missionary Enterprise, with a message titled, Freed from Sin. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, verses 36 to 43, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I think most of us have heard the truism that ideas have consequences. You know, Marx and Engels devised a view of history that believed that the engine of history was the class struggle. And eventually those views would lead to a revolution and the death of millions of people. I mean, ideas do have enormous consequences. But there are other ideas. I mean, those who believe that human beings are all created in the image of God, and those who believe that humans are the product of time plus chance, and that human beings have no intrinsic meaning. I mean, these ideas produce very different consequences. I remember years ago inviting a guest lecturer into a class I was teaching, and he was an atheist, and he said if the world exploded in some fashion tomorrow, there would be, he said, no one to watch, and it wouldn't mean a thing. I thought, well, now, in the same way, if you murder your enemy, and if you do it well enough so that there's no one to watch, well, then perhaps that doesn't mean anything either. That's to say, no grand moral law has been violated outside of the fact that you've rid yourself of a problem in your life. If there's no one to watch and if there's no one to care and no eternal meaning to the event, well, everything gets lived out in horrifying consequences. I remember once being asked to do a funeral in which a great number of people were attending and they were well-educated and they were non-religious. And nonetheless, you know, a loved one had died and perhaps they thought it was good to have a pastor in a church, you know, where someone would say something. And I spoke about the value of human life. And up against that, I quoted from a well-known atheist who said that life had no meaning. And after I was done, I was approached by a young woman. She said, you know, I'm a philosophy student. And this semester, I've been reading the very thing that you are quoting today. And she said, when she discovered these ideas at the university, they seemed like exciting ideas. But thinking about those same ideas at a funeral of a loved one, she said, she's absolutely horrified at the implication." She wondered how she could have so unwittingly allowed herself to adopt such an uncompassionate view of life. Yeah, ideas have consequences. Now, of course, the gospel of Jesus is so much more than an idea, isn't it? It's not something that human beings have devised by their own means. Rather, it comes to us from God. It's his revelation to us, but that revelation has enormous consequences. You know, the driving force of missions is premised on several revealed truths. The first is that God exists, that he's the creator of all, and that he's altogether glorious and worthy of praise. The second is that we as human beings have broken God's perfect laws. We've rebelled against his ways and we're subject to judgment. And the third is that God has sent his son to atone for our sins. And finally, that this grace of forgiveness, this reconciliation with God and eternal life is available to all who renounce their sins and call on Christ for mercy. And the consequence of that is millions of changed lives. But, and this is the driving force of missions, it's not enough to merely present these truths. It's necessary to persuade people of these truths. We present evidence for the truth and then we seek to ask for a response. Believing the gospel is not like believing the truths of the periodic table. To believe in biblical terms is to surrender to the truths, but more, it's to surrender to the person, Jesus. 
And that's why every Christian preacher is so much more than a presenter of truth. Every Christian preacher is a persuader who calls out, turn from your sins, be baptized, take up your cross, follow Jesus. I have in this series been following Paul in his first missionary journey. The church in Antioch, Syria, had a burden for the lost, and in a time of praying and fasting, they heard the Holy Spirit say, Set apart Saul, who is also called Paul, and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. And so after praying and fasting, the church in Syrian Antioch laid their hands on these two men and they sent them out. And as we've traced their journey, we've noticed that the first place they went was to the island of Cyprus, the very island where Barnabas had been raised. A great many Christians had gone there after the persecution in Jerusalem, and so it was quite natural for these men to begin their missionary journey in a place where Christ had already been heard. And they were not without success, as even the Roman proconsul of that island came to faith in Christ. And after that, Paul and Barnabas sailed north, came to the mainland of what is now called the nation of Turkey, but was then a series of Roman provinces. Eventually, traveling through the mountain road, they came to the city of Antioch in Pisidia, and they make their way to a sizable Jewish synagogue there. And as was the custom with visiting rabbis, on any given Sabbath, Paul is invited to address the worshipers there. Do you have, he's asked, a word of encouragement for the people here? It's likely that up until now, there had been no follower of Jesus in this city, although no doubt some would have been quite aware of the Jesus event It's now only been 15 years since Jesus died in Jerusalem. And furthermore, we've noted that the people in this synagogue were made up of Jews and a goodly number of Gentiles as well, who had come to love the God of Israel, and is to this group that Paul declares the gospel of Jesus. Now, I've taken so much time on this single event because this is the first place where Luke records a sermon by Paul. And what fascinates me about this sermon is that it really does lay the groundwork of everything that Paul will say later in his letters. See, up till now, we've examined the first two parts of the sermon. The first part from Acts 13, 16 to 25, deals with the truth that the message of Jesus is rooted in the message of the First Testament. That is, Jesus did not come to bring about a new religion, but to fulfill the one true faith grounded in the Hebrew scriptures, a truth that is at the heart of everything the scriptures teach. Next, in the second section, Paul speaks about Jesus and the events that happened 15 years ago. He puts all of the emphasis on Jesus' death, that it is the fulfillment of scripture, and then also on his resurrection. That also was according to scripture. And so up till now, what Paul has been doing is showing that the God of the Bible has done the next great thing, the ultimate thing, in their generation and in Jerusalem. And they should be aware of God's great saving action. But as I've said, no good preacher ever ends by simply talking about the meaning of Scripture and about what God has done. There comes a time in the sermon when the hearer is invited to respond. And Peter did that in the first Christian sermon ever preached. I mean, after presenting the truths about Jesus, he said, Repent, therefore, and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And according to Luke, repent they did. Three thousand of them in one day. Now, Paul is in a very much smaller setting. Among people who weren't there when the events of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus happened. So, what would Paul invite his audience to do? 
And so let's begin with how Paul concludes the second section of his sermon, Acts 13, 36 to 37. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So why does Paul begin this invitation to respond in this fashion? Well, for one, he's concluding the previous section. If the scriptures regarding the resurrection were to apply to David, well, they would have been untrue. David died, his body decayed, it saw corruption. And on that basis, we can study the life of David and be encouraged by how God saved Israel in his day. And we might even learn from his life and apply some of the truths of his life to our lives. Well, fine and well, but his era is over. He served God in his day. That day is now over, he was buried. But Jesus, who also served God in his generation, also died and was buried. But unlike David, and unlike Abraham, and unlike Moses, and everyone else who's ever served God in their generation, unlike all of them who were laid in their tomb, Jesus does not decay. He rose bodily from the tomb, and that's the issue that Paul has before this congregation. If Jesus was raised bodily, then he's alive. And therefore, we can never say of Jesus, he served God in his day, for his day is right now. And for that reason, we must deal with Jesus in our day. But Paul's just getting started. So verses 38 and 39, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So please notice what Paul is claiming regarding Jesus. And it could only be claimed regarding Jesus. How would forgiveness of sins be proclaimed in David? Well, it couldn't. David himself had been a sinner. Psalm 51 is a plaintive cry that God would forgive David. That's not the message of Jesus. Jesus frees people from their sins. He is the ultimate savior and this is his day. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. We believe Bible teaching is critical for God's people, and your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Neufeld available on this station. But we know there's times when you may miss the radio program, so we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series, both audio and video with Dr. John, but also learn more about our ministry podcasts, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our desire is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is available to as many people in as many ways as possible. For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. We have to imagine Paul preaching in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. He's been reminding his hearers that there are things, even if they were to go to Jerusalem on the Day of Atonement or during the Passover, from which they would never be forgiven. So what would that be? 
Well, at first glance, from reading the books of the law, you might think forgiveness is offered to all who in faith come to the temple and take part in the sacrificial ritual. And so, for instance, when describing the laws for a sin offering, well, listen to Leviticus 4, verse 20. Thus shall he do with the bull, and as he did with the bull of the sin offering, so he shall do with this. The priest shall make atonement for them. They shall be forgiven. And so it seems to be a straight-up statement. Go to the temple, participate in the sin offerings, and watch as the priest makes atonement for you, and then know that your sins are washed away. And that seems to be what Leviticus is saying. But that doesn't yet answer the question of which sins are forgiven. Or do we understand that all sins are forgiven or only some? What did the law actually teach? Well, as a matter of fact, the Mosaic law specified two kinds of sin. So let's consider the first kind, and that's found in Numbers 15, 22 to 24. But if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all the commandments that the Lord God has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by Moses from the day that the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then if it was done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer up a bull and so forth. And that's the key word unintentional. We think of it today as a a mistake or a lapse in judgment or something in which we slipped up. You know, people use that kind of language all the time. They say, it wasn't me. You know, I blew it and I just simply made a mistake and I'm so sorry. Indeed, in the law, there are a list of just those kinds of sins. They include the sins of not speaking up when when you saw a crime committed or, or the sin of touching an unclean animal when you weren't supposed to. It also includes breaches of faith when someone financially harms his neighbor. You know, in such a case, you had to restore the financial harm that you'd done, and then you'd had to add a fifth to it. That is, a 20% penalty would be added. Then you'd go to the temple, confess your sins, offer up an atonement, and atonement would be made on your behalf. But as I've said, that's only one kind of sin. Numbers 15, 30 to 31 says, But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he's a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Ah, a high hand, that's a defiant sin. It's the sin with the uplifted hand, the hand of rebellion against God. So what would be examples of that? Again, the law of Moses makes it quite clear. Turning to idols or turning to mediums and spiritists, that's one example. So are committing adultery or any other kind of sexual sin. That list is in Leviticus chapter 20, and Numbers 35 speaks of murder. Deuteronomy 17 says that if a man speaks presumptuously against a priest, that person is to be cut off from his people. Indeed, we can safely say that breaking the Ten Commandments are considered high-handed sins that are not forgiven by the temple sacrificial ritual. I think it's fair to say that the Mosaic law forgave ritual uncleanness, but not high-handed moral guilt. And in terms of the congregation of the synagogue that day when when Paul was preaching, they would have known all that. Now, of course, the First Testament did offer forgiveness because of the loving kindness of God. You'll remember, for instance, in Psalm 51, after David is found guilty of murder and adultery, you know, he's praying this heart-wrenching prayer to God. And he says, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire or I would give it. And David's saying, if I could find forgiveness for what I've done by the temple sacrificial ritual, I would surely have offered up sacrifices, but there's nothing in the temple there that can forgive me. And so he appeals to the loving kindness of God. But how can God be merciful? 
and then remain just. I mean, the entire nature of the Mosaic sacrificial system reminded one that atonement must be made. Blood had to be spilled, or as Leviticus 17.11 tells us, that it is the blood that makes atonement for your soul. If blood is not shed, forgiveness is not offered, and yet the blood of goats and bulls could not take away high-handed sins. And so we have to come back to Paul preaching in the synagogue. He's telling people what they know. And among other things, synagogues were a place of learning. And they were a place of training in the Hebrew scriptures. And everyone, as Paul is saying, is nodding. They're saying, yeah, we know this. So says Paul, I'm proclaiming Jesus and his sacrifice. And in him, anyone who believes finds forgiveness of sins. As I said before, when Luke records the sermon of Paul, Luke's giving us only the basic outline. And so As we know from Paul's writings, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. His sacrifice frees us from the wrath of God that would be poured out onto us. It was poured out onto Christ. And so speaking that day in the synagogue, Paul's making an offer. It's the same offer that Peter made on the day of Pentecost. Repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus. Throw your hope fully onto Christ and his sacrifice, trusting only in him to forgive your sins. It's not just a message that worked, you know, in a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch 2,000 years ago. This is a message for all of us. Know that your sins don't go away just simply by forgetting that you've done them or by hoping that God will overlook them. Blood has to be spilled. Atonement must be made for you. Christ is the atoning sacrifice for your sins. It is only through him that forgiveness is offered. When Paul has completed his first missionary journey, And after he spoke to the Council of Jerusalem, he went on to write a letter to the churches in the province of Galatia. And there he would reaffirm that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's what Paul is saying. Because our sins were under a curse, but if you trust in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Paul's not yet done with his altar call. Up till now, he's only presented the positive, the benefits of surrendering your life to Christ. But a true and faithful preacher would not be done there without presenting a word of warning of what should happen if we should neglect so great a salvation. So in verses 40 to 41, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells you. And Paul, as he's done repeatedly throughout this sermon, has been quoting from the First Testament. And now... He quotes from Habakkuk 1 verse 5. And the passage in view concerns a time when the city of Jerusalem was abandoning the law of God. Violence and lawlessness were rampant in the city. And so the prophet Habakkuk is in distress and he takes up a complaint to God. God, he says, how can you stand idly by while this kind of wickedness is allowed to continue? Won't you do something? And then God responds. He says, you're going to be astonished for I am doing a work in your day. That is, in your time and before your eyes, I'm going to bring judgment on this city. I'm sending the Babylonians against you. The Babylonians are coming. They're going to burn this city to the ground. And that's what Paul is saying to the synagogue in his day, as well as to us. There's a day of judgment coming. If you're not cleansed from your sins, if you remain in your sins, you're going to have to face the judgment to come. Don't be a scoffer, says Paul, as those people were in Jerusalem. Now is the day to respond to this message. And it's with us as well. 
Why should anyone hesitate? And you, my dear listener, why would you hesitate even for a moment when such a judgment awaits and such mercy is offered to us in this day? If you have not done so, do it today. Repent of your sins. Surrender your life into the hands of Christ. Believe into Jesus and you shall be saved. Paul's sermon has come to an end. Luke summarizes the closing of that day of worship with the words found in verses 42 and 43. It says, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. I hope you heard that. They followed Paul and Barnabas. That's more to say than they were just walking after them as they were walking out. It's to say the message that those men have taught us, that is the truth from God. That's what we will follow. We will believe in Jesus. We will trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. We will hope in him so that he will become our savior. That is to say they believed and they wanted to know more. May that be so with us. And if it's not so with you, do it today, would you? Would you say to the Lord Jesus, I know you're the Son of God, and that your sacrifice is my only hope to be forgiven. I, this day, repent of my sins and surrender my life into your hands. And as you do so, welcome to a new life. Thanks, John. Let me ask, In a world of humanism, universalism, all the isms you can imagine, why is it important to emphasize that every single person needs a savior? Well, you know, if if they thought about it, they would recognize um, that there are so many things that they need to be saved from. And ultimately, they need to be saved from death and the judgment to come. I mean, I, I think we need to continue to hammer that point home in such a way that people are actually listening. I mean, the great problem in our day that people think that everything is okay, but if we help them to understand that it's not okay, and when they become truthful, when they actually gaze at what's actually happening to them, I think at that point in time, they'll recognize they do need a savior. And so that's our message. A savior has come, you need one, Confess your sins, come to him. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, the missionary enterprise right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent and trustworthy Bible teaching for Canadians. What has been accomplished is a result of people like you listening right now who share our hearts for this mission. In particular, those who have chosen to join us in ministry as monthly partners. As we begin a new year, perhaps becoming an 1119 monthly partner might be something you'd consider. Your investment in this ministry assures that people of all ages and stages of life have opportunity to discover more about a new life in Christ through the study of God's Word. Your partnership in 2022 will provide the resources to sustain and expand the reach of Bible teaching across Canada and beyond. 
To learn more about the 1119 Monthly Partnership Program, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or call us at 1-800-663-2425.